I think it's an interesting subject because it's something that I've contemplated a lot because it's a sentence that a lot of people say. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that we can talk about is a sort of a meta subject to this subject is the subject of the language that we use, including the cliches and the automatic words that we use and whatnot, that we just say things without thinking through or to think what they mean. And that this actually goes back to the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, and most specifically, there's a sutta number 139, where it's a, uh, an exposition of how to, uh, to teach the Dhamma. In the, in the sense of um, we don't take, do it the way that psychotherapy, because the client in the psychotherapy comes in order to take this thing seriously, and they're paying serious money to take it seriously as personal, to where the Dhamma is better taught in an impersonal way. And part of the way that we do that is by giving outrageous examples so that we can see it subtly because we can see it in an outrageous sort of way. Um, and so um, the, the term that we were using or looking at is the expression of we are doing our best. And that uh, that was something that was um, also going back into my past of uh, being trained as a therapist in TA. TA, by the way, means transactional analysis by with Eric Byrne was the chief com component of that. But they were also fairly tightly uh, tied to NLP or neuro linguistic programming, where there's the linguistics now. So you have transactional analysis or linguistic analysis. And basically what these two systems of psychotherapy are doing are listening very closely to what people say and the words that are being used and the connotations of the words and what they actually mean. And this goes precisely back to the way that the Buddha uh, was uh, talking in the sense that we try to uh, explain things uh, in clear, direct ways rather than uh, are through metaphors and similes rather than through cliches. So um, the, the one that we're looking at today is I'll try my best or I'll do my best. That word actually uh, was a, a surprise to me even before I got into that stuff that I had, I guess, kind of missed it. And all of a sudden I hear people using that expression. Uh, I think it was at university, in fact, is when I got into school is when they uh, I heard that a lot. And the the idea didn't set well with me in the sense of, do you mean that right now that 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 I'm doing my best? Is that's all I'm capable of, that I'll never get any better than this, that I'm doing my best? But in fact, I would rather think about being laid out. I'm never going to do my best. Why should I put out that kind of effort and stress and strain? I'm not going to do my best. In fact, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to take the opposite approach. And I'm going to do the job with the least. I'm not going to try the best. I'm going to try the least. 
That's an interesting way of looking at it now, because going back to the idea of doing our best has the quality of almost, when, when that's said, it's kind of like an apology. It's almost like that you have to put the word sorry in front of, I'm doing my best. And that it's um, kind of, it's used as an excuse to get away with not doing one's best. Because we could always improve, we could always do better than this. And in fact, that's what Anapanasati is really all about, is accepting ourselves at the skill level we are while we're improving our skill level. And as we're improving our skill level, whatever it was yesterday that was my best is just easy peasy now. <laughs> and so I'm doing the least because now I can do it so well that it's the least I could do. So doing my best actually is, if you can uh, forgive the expression, in the sense of winners and losers or victims and winners, doing my best is something that a loser will say or the victim will say. Sorry, I'm doing my best, as opposed to, oh, that's a piece of cake. That's easy. And so taking on that winner's mentality of it is, yeah, we're, we're quite busy. We're doing what we're doing. And uh, the devil take the hindquarter, I guess, would be the way of, of, of thinking about it. Uh, and that as one becomes more and more enthusiastic about the Dhamma, the things that used to keep us enthusiastic like driving around or getting the work done or whatever like that, we find out that, hey, wait a minute, I can get more benefit by being enthusiastic about the Dhamma than I can by getting enthusiastic about all of that other stuff that I'm trying my very best at and still not being satisfied. If, if I'm hearing you correctly, are you saying that we use that statement as a defense mechanism a bit? Because it's coming from a state of dissatisfaction. Okay. It's not coming from the winner. The winner doesn't say, I did my best. He will say, I am the best. Mm. Or this is the best. Mm. You also hear the word try in there, which has even more weight to it. That we don't, I, I do my best, or I did my best, is different from, I tried my best. Or this is the best that I can do in the sense of uh, the amount of effort that it takes. So the effort that it takes to actually get it done is not the effort that I'm willing to put in. But that's more honest. And that's still not doing our best. Doing our actual best is actually putting forth the effort that it's actually going to take to get the job done once that's thing has been defined as the job to be done. But there's another point about wisdom, and that is all we have to do is say, wait a minute, that's not the job to be done. That job, in fact, doesn't need to be done at all. And I'm already finished now because I have nothing to do because that wasn't to be done in the first place. And that's a real winner. 
<laughs> the real winner is, is that there is no work to be done rather than I'm doing my best at nothing at all. All right, so these are ways that we begin to understand language. Um, and another way of, of looking at it is the um, the word dedication or devotion or serious, like serious about the Dhamma, serious about meditation, devoted to it like that. You can hear the connotation with that is that that's something that losers do. The winner is merely going to be enthusiastic about the Dhamma. He's going to be eager for the Dhamma. I think I see what you're saying. Yeah, you should. Oh, that's good. Right. That devotion or dedication has a quality of trying to come up yeah. to something that, that's difficult to come up to. To where enthusiastic, it's just exciting. It's easy. It. Yeah, right. We're good for it. It's like how a kid's enthusiastic about getting candy. Uh huh. Exactly. Not so enthusiastic about a shot. A shot you have to get with dedication. <laughs> you got to be dedicated. <laughs> you got to be dedicated to get a shot, but you can be enthusiastic about candy. So it really is this base foundation all about gladdening the mind and bringing mm -hmm. yourself to a more positive perspective. Yes. So that's the way of beginning to understand that we the language that we choose often is rooted in the past and that we can evaluate and look at the kind of language that we're using. Yeah, see, because that's exactly why I, I, I brought up the I tried my best thing in the beginning as well it's it wasn't a matter of present moment it was something that was rooted in the past kind of a a, a way to tell myself i i couldn't have done any better and changed the past situation to my liking any more than i have so ah. you know it was like joe said kind of a defense mechanism in its own way precisely so so what we can say in that regard hello robert Hi, Robert. I also noticed that Drew has come on, too. So yeah, anyway, um, that 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 discussion that we're having about uh, trying and doing what ourselves uh, are doing our best is also. I had mentioned it before, but it, with a kind of a different context. But now that you're bringing it up again, let's put look at that in the sense of we say that in order to cover up failure that i have failed at something but instead of just accepting that i have failed at it we'll have to say well i did my best well Rather see actually i believe my my kind of connotation for that statement is saying i did my best is the acceptance of the failure you know, accepting uh -huh. the fact that I couldn't have done anything better to not have failed. Except that you probably could have. If you had woken up quicker, if you had developed the skills that you're developing easier, so in fact you didn't do your best, you could also say that you failed because you didn't do your best. And that's more accurate. <laughs> 
Yeah, and see, I think that's what I needed to hear. Uh-huh, that is okay for us to fail, and it's also okay for us to not going around doing our best. That, in fact, doing our best is, is kind of like a standard or a rule or a bar that we're supposed to reach over and that we often don't. And so we can see that uh, that's, those standards are part of the critical mind, or they also can be thought of in uh, the Buddhist terms as sila vata paramasa. You've made a rule in your mind that you're supposed to do your best, especially when you failed. Rather than it's okay to fail. I didn't do my best and I screwed it up. Never mind, start again. Fair enough. That in fact, if I really look at the failure and recognize what I did do wrong, that I did screw it up, I didn't do my best, now I have a better shot at the next time getting it right because I'm actually investigating what it was that I had missed out on. So in the regard of what you had said you were doing your best at, we can start evaluating that or looking at that in the detail about why you feel like you're a failure when in fact it looks like to me that you're successful. You called. In fact, Joe said that you'd called last week on the other uh, channel or the other network. Yeah, I, I definitely, I try my best to, to get on it. <laughs> you caught me, you caught me. <laughs> no, I'm just laughing. You caught you. You figured it yeah. out. It's just automatic though, right? Like we start to notice this, that yeah, so exactly. much of our communication like it's I'm not just, even saying it consciously. It's just the the quickest phrase that my brain is able to grab onto to most accurately describe what I'm trying to convey to you. Ah, and under that is the feeling of things are not good enough yet. And that's what we're looking at is, is that you don't even have to do your best to be okay. Even when you're failing, it's still, you can feel good. You could be a champion even when you screw up. Why can you be a champion when you screw up? Because a champion can pick himself up, dust himself off, take a look at what he fell over, kick it, and then boogie on down the road. <laughs> and the loser is the one who lays in the road saying, I did my best. Yeah, and the winner is the one who gets up and says, I know I can do better. I can do better than this. Yeah. And the, and the reality I will do better. And the reality is that you can do better than that when you develop the skills. That, in fact, seeing that is part of the skill development. That's what we wake up to, is we wake up to the fact that we actually intentionally, with I, I did my best, talk ourselves into feeling bad or justify the bad feelings, which is a more subtle way of talking ourselves in, even to worse feelings. Well, then, hot dog, I see that one. 
<laughs> Never mind, I can fix it now that I see it. I, ha I have a question a little bit related to this. Uh, when, when you're communicating, uh, is it still possible to have the same level of awareness or sati as when you're not communicating? Like when words are coming out of your mouth, the, like for for instance, for you, is it because sometimes I find it hard to uh, maintain my sati if I'm f physically communicating? Yes, exactly so. When the student begins the practice of sati, he keeps that on his mind. And when he's talking, what he's having to say, he's got on his mind, not so much sati. It's only when the sati gets very strong that we begin to monitor the words, every word that we're saying, so that we can say a word, and that word can actually, and let us say, be one of the deadly words of Hollywood, or uh, let us call it a low-class word, but it doesn't have to necessarily be a harsh word. And so in the Pali, it's not about the word itself, but it's the way that it's said also, whether the word is harshness. So I can happily say I don't give a fuck, and it doesn't matter at all. But I can also say, I don't give a fuck. Okay, and that's said in a different way. Uh-huh. And so that is very harsh. And what I was picking up on initially was the harshness underlying that trying to do one's best that is there. It has to do a lot with the way that we say words as well as the actual word itself. But <clears throat> as you now have recognized that you have said that little phrase about doing your best twice absentmindedly in this conversation, now that you know that, I bet we won't hear it from you again in this hour, and maybe not ever. Yeah. I'll do better. I'll do better. <laughs> now, see, that was very conscious. So that now you can say, well, I'll do my best. Mm -hmm. But now we can say it with full consciousness. The issue was is that you were saying it kind of absentmindedly, which is exactly what Joe was referring to. Can we, in fact, be conscious of the words that we're using and also be conscious of the effect that we have on people when we're talking, rather than it's more important for me to get it off my chest or to get it out, never mind how it's being received. And, but that's actually part of the, the training of the psychologist is to observe, to watch what the, the client is doing. And so with that, I use that skill so that I can uh, observe and look and see so that I can see things that you're doing that you don't even know you're doing, but they're in plain sight for me because I'm looking, intentionally looking. Because you know what to look for. Because I'm not right, because I know what I'm looking for. Hmm. And what I'm looking for basically is, you know, uh, facial movements, gestures, hand positions, uh, uh, that kind of stuff, inflections of words and the actual words that they're using. 
And in fact, one of the tricks that I used, if people will watch the videos over and over, many, many videos on and on, you'll find that one of the techniques that I use is that I'll listen to the student until they use a word, and I'll grab a hold of that word, and I'll hammer that word for the rest of the hour. <laughs> I've I've also noticed that you take pauses at certain times, almost like, uh, and, and it seems to be very uniform among students. And it's almost like you're waiting to see what their response is going to be to that pause. Uh, mm -hmm. And sometimes they respond, and sometimes they don't. But yeah, <laughs> it's exactly the way that you would watch an old dry sponge under a drippy faucet. Is any of those drops of water actually soaking in, or are they rolling off? That was a good analogy. <laughs> but the thing of it is, though, is that once the sponge is a little bit wet and starts to absorb water, it will absorb more and more water. The analogy continues. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it gets better. And so that's you're you're right about that, Joe. Is that that's one of the things that we do is is that we just sit and watch to see what response is. So, uh, listening to the words that you use will be very very valuable in your development of sati. But actually listening intensely to the kind of language that we are using. And recognize that you already have kind of absent-mindedly been choosing the words that you use because you've been choosing to use those same words. They're kind of like on the top of the shelf or when you open the box of words, those are the first words that are there. Instead of doing more of an investigation and looking around for a better word to use and then going after that one. So that's one of the things that you can uh, start to practice is mindfulness of the words that you're using and the way that that they're that they're said. And it's very useful. That's sati. That's one of the great values that I get out of having these conversations with you guys is that it gives me a chance to come right back into the Dhamma. This is it. Paying attention, looking at what's going on, listening to what's happening, observing, um, investigating. And so uh, in that regard, Ron, like I said before, welcome. I'm glad that you're back. Congratulations for coming back and congratulate yourself for at least doing that much, even if it wasn't your best. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. As opposed to the other thing was is that I haven't been here enough. Yeah. Well, I'm here now. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's the way that we look at it is what actively on. making the change. Uh-huh. Actively in this moment making a change. That's what Sangha is all about. Is uh guys who are actually listening, looking at each other, paying attention, giving each other positive feedback so that we can grow together.
that's the life of the of the uh, the temple life at uh, at the watch is is that we are uh, let us say uh, each one of us is the nurturing nanny for the other. as opposed to the critical nanny, which we don't need. We're already doing a lot of that anyway. So by practicing nurturing with other people, that also helps us practice that nurturing with ourselves. But it's good to be practicing that nurturing with the others within the community or within the Sangha, like you would practice nurturing with your wife and your kids. But if you start practicing nurturing with the boss, he may un- not understand. <laughs> he may think you're buttering him you. up or maybe taking control or something. But having that nurturing, everything is okay attitude with one another is really beneficial. And so the more you hang out with others in the Sangha, the more value it will be. Well, then I definitely plan to take advantage of that high value opportunity. Excellent. Excellent. You know, even now, just from our, oh, sorry. You don't have to do your best. You just have to remember. Yeah, no, even now from our conversation, I'm starting to consciously be aware of what it is that I'm saying, why I'm saying it, and if it's something that I should be saying or if it can be, I want to say, replaced or, you know, if something better can be said or something should not be said at all. You know, instead of just absentmindedly speaking, I'm kind of trying to analyze my thought process and how that evolves into what it is that I want to say or that I do say. That's a very excellent thing to do because that's exactly the process that we're going to start doing with the thoughts themselves. Is this thought worth having? Hmm, I see. So you're giving me the baby steps. Well, actually, the baby mm, step is the thought. I mean, the word is a great big thing, but because it's a great yeah. big thing, that's often easier to see. In other words, that's, we can start yeah, see, that was my point. I feel like it is much easier to, to see and have a conscious awareness over what you're saying than what you're thinking. Because, mm-hmm. you know, with, with language, it's easy if, you know, if you're looking at what you're saying and you don't want to say something, it's as easy as not saying it. But I feel like sometimes with your thoughts, when you try to to not think something or to run away from it, so to speak, that thought can become stronger. Uh-huh. That's exactly what the value of the precepts are when the uh, the precepts are properly valued. The problem with precepts is, is that we make rules out of them that we can't keep. But if we use them as guidelines or guideposts to the point of, oh, if I am uh, going to refrain from trash-mouthing others in public, 
then maybe I can learn to not trash mouth them in private. And if I can even do that, maybe I can learn to not trash mouth them at all. And then maybe I can go so far as to not trash mouth them even in thought. So this is a way of looking at it. And by the way, using the word trash mouth here is, is uh, within the Buddhist context would be malicious gossip. Mm. So, saying ill of a third person or trying to divide uh, as, like uh, a, an example of that is a student would come and say, oh, well, I've had X, Y and Z as teacher. And this teacher who he is coming to says, oh, those guys don't know any Dhamma. They don't. I mean, get away from them. Okay, that's trash mouthing. No, just speaking negatively of anyone. Right, else. speaking negatively of other people is uh, one of the important uh, items that I learned as a monk. That monks do not criticize one another. They don't speak ill of one another. And if we can learn to not speak ill of another, then perhaps we can also learn to not speak ill of ourselves. Yeah, Joe, what? So if <clears throat> if you're, say, having like a, a, a conflict or some, well, I guess not a good word. If you're having uh, something that you can see is clearly uh, someone else not practicing the Dhamma and you want to point that out to them in a skillful way, how how do you then do that with uh, without becoming without falling into this criticism. For example, sometimes when I'm talking to somebody that is another practitioner and I I, I can see something clearly that could be helpful. Um, I want it's like I want to say something, but I but I don't want to be critical. And it often ends up that I, I'm very passive and the point doesn't get across where I'm like, hey, listen, you know, I, like I want to be like, hey, listen, that's just not right from my experience. Uh, but then that might come across as critical. So I don't know if you had any tip there. Hello, Noor. It's good to see you. Um, nice Joe, the answer to your question uh, can be looked at in a number of suttas. That in fact we did a um, uh, a whole talk uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, on this issue. And the um, the name of it, I guess, would be what would the Buddha do? And that we covered six suttas of where the Buddha had to do some sort of intervention for one reason or another. OK, and uh, the point that I'm wanting to make now about that is, is that in uh, most of these cases, there was a group of monks that were in participation. In other words, this was not a one-on-one -on -one kind of thing, but um, an example that I can use from my own past is that uh, at one time I had criticized another Western monk for not being a good enough meditator. And very soon after that, the next day or so, I was visited by a group of monks, a number of them, I would say maybe somewhere between eight and 15. It felt like 15 and it probably was eight if I counted them. <laughs> but in the in any case, they came 
to discuss this issue with me, that this is one of the ways and one of the reasons why I know it's so important within the Sangha of, of monks that they don't criticize one another, especially not in public. And so this was my education on that particular point. But I was visited by a group of monks to point this out. So what we're looking at here now is the possibility that instead of confronting one on one, it's better to discuss the issue with others to find out, do they think that this is worthy of you and they going and spending their time to straighten this out? Because some things are worth uh, taking care of and others are not worth the effort. You could also go so far as to say perhaps the effort is worth whether or not this guy who is in the Sangha is leaving the Sangha because of this. That would be when it would really be worth the effort to go get him or that he's doing something quite harmful. But if it's nothing, then maybe it's easy to let it go or take a different tactic. But the hardcore big things would be that they are done in a group. That lends the weight. If one monk that I didn't know or even Achan Po had come, and in fact, I do remember Achan Po giving me exactly the same advice over exactly the same issue. And I didn't get it well enough from him. But when that whole group came to me to do that, that's when I bought it. That's when I got the point. Okay, so doing it in a group will lend the weight so that the guy can actually hear what you have to say. That's one thing. Now for the other stuff, when it's when it's small, and by the way, in that, when there when you're say there with seven other guys, you don't have to take the whole show. It doesn't belong to you that you're not the uh the accusator. You're just merely one of the group, and everyone has the point that they can make statements about um, how how we're building friendship here. We're not here to criticize one another. We're here to help each other in that uh, kind of thing like that. So that would be a big issue. For the small issues, if it is small, then it's worth a joke. It's worth teasing about. It's worth nothing. It's worth um, having a, a, a like a aha, I see you, Myra, kind of moment out loud. And you can play games like that. I mean, in, in family settings, you have uh, something like the tip jar to where you have to put in a quarter or maybe nowadays you have to put in a dollar for every dirty word you say or something like that. Well, you can begin to have those kind of games with each other in the Sangha to make light of it, to make it a joke, but make it a point of sati. Put it on your to remember list. That's I guess I guess I asked this specifically because uh, I, I've seen you talk about some of your past teachers that, well, I guess they aren't really teachers, but you've called referred to them as like charlatans. Uh, like some of the guys in India that you hung out with that you were like, oh, that guy is just clearly uh, a charlatan. Uh, there's just, you know, uh, uh, I, I can't remember specifically the, the name of the guy that you were referring oh, to. Probably Satya Sai Baba. <clears throat> it, could, it could have been. 
Yeah, 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 it was that. That's the one. Um, and sometimes on the internet, especially, there's a lot of these sort of guys. And when you're within this sort of circle, you run into other people and, and some person might might meet somebody who, you know, is uh, is one of these sorts of guys, uh, you know, and you want to, like, be helpful and point this out. But then at the same time, you don't want it. Like, I, I don't know the full story. Maybe the guy is enlightened. You know, I, I don't really know. But, uh, yeah, it's just sometimes I see friends uh, within the, the Dhamma that uh, sort of follow these guys that I, I don't know. To, to me, I... Have you ever heard the concept of beauty is in the eye of the beholder? Yeah. All right. Then the beauty of this teacher is in the eye of the beholder also, which means enlightenment is not something he is. Enlightenment is something you project onto him. Right. That makes sense. In that regard. That's important. Because you're saying that you're not willing to um, uh, to plaster him with your label of enlightenment. Right. That makes sense. Therefore, for yeah. you, he is not enlightened, never mind what he says. Right. And and sometimes, like, the, what they're saying is so clearly against uh, what I recognize as helpful that I just I just want to help people out because you know I I've also been stuck at various points you know like and so you want to be helpful and point this out lightly, but you don't want to like I don't know especially if somebody really gets on to a teacher, I found that that can be a very that they're very dedicated to that specific teacher. Um, so yes. But they're not going to be undedicated to that teacher and go be dedicated to your choice of teacher for him. No, I'm not necessarily thinking that, but it's generally people who talk to you also. And so it's just sort of pointing out like, hey, I'm I'm not sure that Damarado would approve of this guy (laughs) necessarily, you know, but I, I, I don't really know, you know. Well, um, hang on just a second. Meh. Price your name, Hang on. Oh, it's so quiet when Tomorado leaves. <laughs> I'm enthusiastic about the silence. Mm. So you guys could continue on. You don't need me. <laughs> um, Joe, uh, first off, we can look at it in the sense that there is Dhamma that is wholesome, valuable, productive, and of great worth and of great value. This is the, uh, the the practice. And then there are other teachings that have to do with the teachings of gaining power or justifying positions and gaining money and wealth and also longevity, wanting to live on into the distant future, maybe three or 400,000 years or so. 
This is the kind of belief systems that people have that keep them in an immature state of desire. And then one of the things that they desire is for other people to see them as something special. We all want to be special. And so people will actually give themselves labels like I'm an Arahant because I'm special. That And so uh, this is what I caution you with is that there are a lot of people who claim to have things, but they don't demonstrate them. That you need to look at this person and say, does he actually live and exude that which he is speaking? And if he doesn't, in other words, if you have uh, a meditation teacher who is talking to you about going deep into meditation, then he talks very long and slow, like Goanka, and he's putting you into that kind of mood, then that's all right, because that he's congruent. He's doing it that way. Or if he's uh, working with uh, excitement and exhilaration and pumping the student up in the present moment so that the, the student is getting some joy and satisfaction in the here now, then that's also congruent. But if he's telling stories about past and future, or if he's trashing someone else or whatever like that, then probably he is not worthy of much attention. That, that you can tell when a teacher wants something from the student. Like he wants them to believe that he is worthy of being a teacher is one of the things that a teacher that uh, will exude. That's a good sign that he is not there yet. So you you guys already know in your own mind, I'm just repeating things that you already know. I'm giving you absolute permission to really start to look and investigate other people that you're around. To know whether they're congruent or incongruent. What I mean by incongruent is that's another word for a crowd. They say this and then they say that and then they say this and then they say that and it doesn't fit together. But when someone is congruent, that means that everything that they say fits together cohesively. That's one of the things that's very interesting about the Dhamma itself is that though there's been hundreds of thousands of books written, there's whole libraries full of books about it. The whole teaching of the Buddha in its entirety is actually quite small. It's in a nutshell. He only teaches just one little thing. And the diversity comes um in the misunderstanding or the misapplication an example of that is is that a, um, a restaurant you can have a french restaurant you can have a uh, mexican restaurant you can have italian you can have wellington beef wellington all kinds of different things a seafood restaurant and every one of them has a kitchen but they all those kitchens have one thing in common and that is, is that if they don't take out the garbage, then the next group of meals that they fix will not be as good. And if they never take out the garbage, nobody will want to eat from the food of that restaurant. That's the one thing that they all have in common, no matter what the variety of food they serve, 
they all have one thing in common, and that is garbage. Every human being, no matter what the diversity we have, no matter how complex our lives are, we all have one thing in common, and that is garbage. And the question is, are we going to be willing to take out the garbage? Or are we going to uh, try to ignore it because we don't like it? It looks like a lot of work. It smells bad. Let's not do anything about it. To where the relief is, is to get rid of the garbage. Now we can use the kitchen. I can imagine that some people would go around in the kitchen and only have this little part of it because the whole rest of the kitchen is full of garbage that they won't bother to clean up. So when we take that analogy with the mind, we can recognize then that, oh, that's one thing we all have in common, and that is, is that we do things out of the past rather than doing things in the present, that we're always constantly adding old garbage to the new cooking that we're doing mm. until we clean the kitchen. But we have to keep cleaning the kitchen and keep cleaning the kitchen. As long as we're going to keep making dinner, we need to keep cleaning the kitchen. But we can get that cleaning job really, really organized well. We can even have it constructed so that the trash bin is actually um, a thing that goes out of the kitchen. All you have to do is drop it in the trash bin and out of the kitchen it goes. And so there's some things that we can do then that make it really, really easy to clean the kitchen. But there is always the necessity of cleaning up after your mess. Knowing that, that's liberating. Think about it, that we have to actually give ourselves permission. We're going to be making a mess for the rest of our lives. Let's enjoy cleaning it up. And sometimes we're really good at it that we can clean that mess up before it actually comes out of the mouth. Or in the case of the restaurant, maybe we can clean that mess up so much so that it doesn't get into the food that we're serving. And so we started, uh, one of the ways then is to start inspecting the food that's coming out to see if there's any garbage in there. And eventually we can find the source of the garbage that didn't get taken out of the mind. Which reminds me of another story about this, and that is, is that I've heard it, perhaps you have heard me say it, and that is, is that everyone, each individual one of us, every human being, is an emperor of their own pile of dirt. <laughs> every one of us is an emperor of our own pile of dirt. The question is, are you going to be smothered under your pile of dirt? Are you going to be completely covered with your pile of dirt? Are you going to be struggling to get out of your pile of dirt? Or are you just going to sit on the top of the world, sitting on top of your pile of dirt, not paying it much attention at all, using it as a perch instead of a burden? I think I'd rather sit on the top of it. All right. Well, you can do that with your thought. You can change your thought from I'm under it, I'm buried in it, I'm doing my best, into being right on top of it. Hey, I can take care of that. That's an easy peasy. It's the attitude change. It's very nice talking to you, Damarada. <laughs> 
It's just an attitude change. And so having that attitude to, hey, I can handle this. Hey, I can do this. What if you can't do it? What if you, what if you like repeatedly let yourself down? Very difficult. To... Can you speak up a little bit, Robert? Yeah, sorry, it was just the mic volume. Um, what if you can't do it and you repeatedly let yourself down, which makes it very difficult to um, to hold that attitude? So well, you let yourself down over and over so again. It's not so much of letting yourself down as putting yourself down. It's mm. your reaction to letting yourself down. Mm-hmm. And the putting yourself down is, is that you're being critical. Mm. Rather than nurturing and self-accepting. That we uh, begin to understand slowly, slowly is one of the most difficult lessons for the uh, Dhamma dude to learn is that it is okay to screw up. It's not okay mm. to hurt people, mm. but it's okay to screw up. Why? Because our screw ups are actually, you can think of it from scientific perspective, is, is that your screw-ups are actually your diagnosing or your diagnostics. It's your lesson. It's your lesson or it's your experiment. That in, in fact, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Edison, who invented the light bulb back in the 1880s or so. He said that um, uh, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And what mm. he meant by that was, is that you have to fail over and over and over again so that you know what doesn't work. But every time we do fail, we learn something about it. And we begin to put things together. So congratulate yourself when you see that you have made a mistake. And the time to do that is like you wake up and you recognize, oh, I'm worried about an email that I've got to write, and I'm not writing that email right now. Let me just throw that out of my mind. In other words, I accept that I had been writing an email, but I don't have to do that. I can just, you know, throw that out. But a lot of meditators will say, oh, yeah, I'm really worried about that email. I ought not to be. Mm, mm. And by doing like it that way, they're actually putting themselves down. You ought not to be worried about the email. Rather than, aha, I see that worry about the. What was mm. that, John? Ron? I was saying instead of questioning why you are, just exclaiming that you shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. mm. So you actually are putting yourself down rather than, aha, I see that. Mm. So we become mm. joyful about seeing the mistakes that we make. Because there are able to see the functions of the ego, how it brings you down and how it's 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 absent minded almost. And once you start to become conscious of it, you see yeah. how silly it really is at the end of the day. <laughs> wow. And how painful it is when we don't see how silly it is. Yeah, it's literally <laughs> just because of the repetition that your mind is so used to thinking like that. Mm hmm. So mm, we have yeah. been repeating over and over again, repetition over and over and over again for, throughout the years of talking ourselves into feeling bad. Now we're waking up and we're beginning to see that that critical thinking is uh, harmful.
and mm. that we therefore yeah. can um, become nurturing to ourselves, including the nurturing when we fail. Aha, uh-huh, I see that. Yeah, look at that. We can do that. We can do something about that. Yeah, so, yeah. It's like switching your like motivation systems from like needing self-criticism to just doing, just mm-hmm. doing, just being happy and uh, letting letting good actions come from that. Exactly. So we used to see failures as a failure. Now we mm. can see failures as a success. Why? Because I can see that that failed. Let's do something new now. Nice. Yeah. It's because I see a fit. Uh huh, and so we can begin to make friends with it. There, there's actually a song. It's um, uh, it seems to to resonate with a lot of students, and the song is from Simon and Garfunkel, back in the 1960s. And the name of the song is uh, "The Sound of Silence," but the opening line is what we're looking at here, and it starts with. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Now, when I first heard that, I was thinking about that the students would, I mean, the guy's got his guitar and he's taking it into a bedroom and turning the lights off to feel sorry for himself. And he needs in darkness. But I've come to understand that, no, this darkness is what we're talking about is the mistakes we make, the dirty things that we think, the unwholesome thoughts that we have. And that when we get like uh, dwelling on a girl or thinking about something that we don't have or making ourselves miserable, but the wake up can be, hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Now, this is exactly what the Buddha said when he would say, aha, I see you, Mara. Aha, I can see that dirt in the mind. I can see that I'm not on top of it, that this pile of dirt right now is on top of me. And I can say, aha, I see that and turn things upside down again. So that you're back on top of your world. But if you're not willing to admit that you're unburied under your pile of crap, then how in the world can you flip things around? If I said I've done my best, then I don't have any place to go. If I said, wow, I screwed that up, I could be better than that. I can turn that around. Yeah, that's a good point. So hello, darkness, my old friend, which means now we can begin to make friends with the mistakes that we keep making and don't want to look at. We can see them now and learn from them. So that goes back, Joe, to your uh, original question. How can you get another person to see the darkness that you can see, but they don't want to see it? And maybe if they're good Dhamma boots and you guys have been doing this already and have some clues, maybe all you need to do is start singing the song, Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend, and he'll get the point. Maybe it'll wake him up. Or things like, aha, I see you. Or you can just repeat the words, just like the way that I actually uh, started with Ron, was grabbing a hold of that word, doing the best. And look out, I mean, we've been able to talk an hour over that one. (laughs) Yeah, definitely feel better than I did when I started this call. 
Excellent, excellent. That's what it's all about. Can uh, Joe, can you walk away from telling somebody uh, their worst things and they feel good about it? That's the question. Will they listen and get it and say, wow, that's thank you. That's really good for you pointing that out. Now I can grow. Well, at the end of the day, I also think it, it also comes down to the fact that someone won't change unless they actually want to. And, you know, some people, although they are stuck in this cycle of misery, so to speak, they actually find comfort in that cycle because it is all they know. Well, well, we do get gratification out of it. There is reasons for doing that, that we do take the gratification. And because we take the gratification out of it, in other words, it's easy. It's just easier just to go along the way that we've been going along. And it's a little bit work to wake up and take the right effort to change it. But the real point comes is when we do wake up and see the danger in that gratification. And we recognize, wait a minute, I've got to weigh things out here very much like they, they do in business. They do a cost benefit analysis before we were only looking at the benefit and never really looking at the cost. We couldn't see the dukkha in it. Now that we can see the dukkha, we can weigh that out and say, wait a minute, I don't need this. This is too much work. It's not worth the effort. Like being critical of oneself is just not worth the effort. Hiding from one's own mistakes is not worth the effort. The gratification is I don't have to look at it, but the danger is, is that I keep having to do it over and over again and not get any relief from it. And so when we see that danger, we can say, wait a minute, maybe it's a good idea that I not take the gratification there. Then we put in the right effort that it takes to change that. Uh, you clean up your garbage. Right. To clean it. Once we see the garbage, it's easy enough to clean it up. So thank you, friend, for pointing out that pile of garbage. I didn't see it. So I think that this has been a really good conversation. I really enjoyed this, guys. You, each, any of you have another topic or something else, a question or something to talk about? Well, yeah, I, I have a few things I like to ask if no one else has anything. All right. I think Muhammad was saying something, but yeah. I can't hear him. I don't know if your microphone's on. Yeah, I see his lips moving. Nor but... Now it's on. I still don't hear you. No, I still don't hear you. You turned the mic on and off, but I didn't hear what happened. Maybe try unplugging the headphones. Use like the built-in mic, maybe. Uh -huh. Do you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You hear me? Yes. yes. Can uh, hear you. Uh, uh, yes. I just want to say that I want to wish you everyone happy new year. It's uh, since it's oh, uh, the you. opportunity. Thank you. Yes, happy, happy 
happy new year, happy new moment. You know, um, it's interesting that humans have special days like holidays, but I like to think of it that every day is a holiday. Every day is holy. Every yeah. day is worth uh, enjoying it. Every day is worth telling somebody else, I hope that this is a good moment for you. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't see holidays as any different from other days. I feel like for the most part, it's just constructs for people to, you know, meet up and get drunk together. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. Um, it's also a reason to bring people together, so you can't complain. Yeah, that's yeah. that is true. Yes, having having the ability for people to get together. Uh, but we don't need an excuse to do that. We need an opportunity instead. And so we can see it as an opportunity to do it because of the uh, social constructions. But I'm looking at it not from that perspective, but looking at it from the mental perspective of every day is a holiday. Yeah. Every day is every a joyful day. Every day is so nice. Every day is wonderful. And my job is only to enjoy and appreciate it. Now I'll treat every, every morning when I wake up like it's Christmas Day. Yeah, it's Christmas Day every day. Oh, that's You're like the, right. that's a, like the, the go pro ahead, level Nora, gladness. You got your hand up. I see that. <laughs> and on... On a uh, like a related note, like I think, uh, like a lot of people live their lives waiting for the weekend or waiting for a vacation or something, and viewing every day as a vacation, it can be really helpful, you know. Mm -hmm. But that's that's often a thing that I've I've done it for a lot of years before talking to Domerado, so it's always exciting hearing <laughs> that I'm on the right track because I've been telling people <laughs> for years that every day is a vacation when they're getting excited about their summer vacation or something. So. <laughs> I like that. That's a good one. Yeah, every day is a holiday. Every day is beautiful. And we don't have to make it extra special holy that, in fact, we're missing out when it only happens a rare occasion once a year, twice a year, three times a year, when, in fact, we could celebrate every day. I'm still alive. <laughs> we could even go so far as to celebrate this breath. Wow, I'm still breathing. No, never <gasps> Well, I'm still breathing. Happy, <laughs> Happy in breath. <laughs> <laughs> Happy 5.15 a.m. Mm. Okay, guys. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really beautiful call. Thank yeah. you, Don you. Oh, you, oh you. wait a minute. You said, Ron, that you had a question or two. Let's go to, for that. What was your question? Oh, well, it's just a... Uh... So before we were talking about like gladdening, gladdening the mind and, you know, kind of changing your perspective to more pure one, taking out the, the mental trash, so to speak. And uh, I was also wondering about how far that extends on a physical level, like, you know, when it comes to, you know, like dieting, what you eat and, uh, you know, the actions that you do on a daily basis, the desires that you give into. I would say, rather than making a new list of shoulds and don'ts and whatnot like that, 
but to say the primary job is to get the mind cleaned out. And once the mind is cleaned out, you can Wait, investigate you clearly. And then you just cut out for me. I'm sorry. OK, the what I was saying is, is that uh, the number one task that we can think of is let's get the mind cleaned out. Once the mind is cleaned out, we can make better logical decisions about what else needs to be done. And that might be kind of natural. In other words, as we begin to clean out the mind, we begin to practice things like uh, mindfulness of eating, which then would lead to a kind of a new diet for you. So basically it just starts, it's just a matter of gladdening the mind and then everything else unfolds naturally. Right. It unfolds naturally, especially we have to pay attention to the part that un uh, that is unfolding is the positive attitude. The gladdening of the mind brings apart good feelings and the, the good feelings over and over again then bring about that winner's attitude. I can do this. I can handle this. And those are the four items on the Eightfold Noble Path that we keep talking about. Mindfulness to wake up, make the investigation, take the effort to gladden the mind. Once the mind is gladdened, appreciate that it's gladdened. And say with the idea that you can do this again. You can do this again. You can do this again. No matter how obstructed the mind is, we could come back and clean it out and come uh, to seeing things the way that they really are in the present moment. And so that's that fourth item is right attitude. I can do this. I can handle this, which was exactly the point that we started off with this conversation, by the way, was I did my best, which was saying I didn't handle it. OK, and so now we're saying, no, I don't do my best. I do it easy. You hadn't seen my best. <laughs> I like that. Often my best is in other ways of looking at it is my worst, and I don't bother either one of those. <laughs> so that's the answer to that question. Don't worry about any of that other stuff. Get the mind straightened out by cleaning it out and gladdening it up, and then take credit for it, that you can do this. That in fact, this is the job that needs to be done. Congratulate yourself for being able to do that job. The only job that really needs to be done is to clean the mind and congratulate yourself for doing it. And when um, you start any other task with that mentality, you've got a good possibility of making the right choices. Yes, Robert. Oh, you just. Uh, you, I think you just sort of answered at the end, but I was just going to ask, can gladdening the mind like in the long run lead to like being more productive? Because like you said, the biggest reason, and I think it's like this for a lot of people in the West, the biggest reason that I fail to gladden the mind is because I have something to do that I'm procrastinating doing, or I spent the day procrastinating doing something and I feel bad about it. So it's like I'm, I'm fearing some task I have to do or I failed to do my, my task today. And that's like the number one reason I get like bummed out. Yes, exactly. That in fact, another way of saying it is, is that, oh, I don't have time to gladden the mind because I'm too busy getting all of this work done. And I'd rather get the work done, even if I had to feel bad do, doing it. 
Yes, that's well, exactly. Everything exactly. you do is an opportunity to flatten yeah. the mind. Ah, that's mm. exactly right. So what we need to practice is, is instead of getting the job done, no matter how much bad we feel, is to go away from that job, get ourselves feeling really good. Now we can come back feeling good and do the job better than we could have if we were doing it right. when we so didn't want the, to do it. The, that we actually become it's... more productive. We could get more yeah. done and enjoy doing more when we're doing it gladly. And not only yeah, that, it's... but then eventually, as what Ron was asking, now we're capable of making new choices about what jobs we're going to do. So the beginning yeah. is, is let's get the mind cleaned out and then we can go do the job that we've already decided we're going to do and we can do that with joy. But then the third way is just to now we're free enough to really decide what's worthy doing, what's worth my time and effort. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Would you say it's um, it's worthwhile to like flip that whole thing on its head of where no matter how bad I have to feel, I have to get this done. Whereas instead we can make it, no matter how little I get done, I have to feel good first and foremost. So I guess yeah. it's also a matter of why do I feel yeah. so bad? I worry, I worry that might be like an absolutistic way to think of it or an oversimplification, but I think like, do you think that could work? <clears throat> if you, well, and if, you don't, if you don't get the job done, still congratulating yourself. <clears throat> like what I, I like to do is like do like 80% of a job and and just be happy with that, <clears throat> you know, because you've been beating yourself up for so many years and, yeah. and you're still not mm -hmm. able to to get that whatever it is done. And like mindfulness is not it's not going to be like a new sort of like whip, like not now I'm going to get this into yeah. shape. You know, that's a, yeah. a thing that you fall into But <laughs> to congratulate be yourself. Happy. Happy. Yeah, no, but to congratulate <laughs> yourself that like, you know, if, if you don't get it done at all, if you don't even start it still, you know, like, yeah, because you can you can quickly fall into that uh, mindset of trying to beat yourself up again, basically. Uh, oh, it's all too yeah. easy. Yes, that's right. Joe, congratulations. That was really well said. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yes, that's exactly it's from, it's from experience. <laughs> Beating myself up a lot and seeing it. <laughs> yes, that's it. Well, you either beat yourself up a lot, don't see it, and then beat yourself up a lot more. Or you can beat yourself up a lot, start looking at it, and now we beat ourselves and we look at it when it happens. It feels even worse when we're doing that's why we slow it down. And eventually we stop beating ourselves. We stop being critical. We stop beating ourselves up for our failures and begin to rejoice in our failures as learning experiences. Aha, I caught it again. <laughs> okay, guys, oh, well, man. this is great. Anybody else got any questions? All right. Uh, Nor, it's yeah, good to really. see you. Haven't seen you in a while. I'm glad to see you. Happy moment. Happy in breath. Happy today. Happy new year. One day at a time. <laughs> Ron, good to Happy see you again. Breath. Happy end breath. I like that. Thank you. Good to all see right, you guys. guys. Thank you. Thank you all. Uh huh. See you some bye other bye. time. Bye. All right. Thank you. See you bye. soon.